Father God, we thank you so much that we can be here. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to do what is best for us and for our souls to commune and get in your word, Lord God. Father, I just pray right now that you would help all of us to be focused on you and you alone, help distractions to be set aside, Lord, that we could just solely focus on what you would have for us on this day. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we're going to be beginning a study through the book of Habakkuk. And that might not, a few different folks have come up to me and like, I haven't heard a study on that book, or I haven't looked at that book. So it's exciting to be able to go there. And when I was in prayer, when Pastor asked to cover while he was away in India, the preparation for this really only further reiterated why God put this book on our heart for right now, and why we as believers need to commit and be focused on studying not only the New Testament, but also the Old Testament and the importance of that. I know it's cliche to say, but the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And Habakkuk is where we are. And this is one of the Old Testament books, categorized as a minor prophet book of the Old Testament. And it isn't one we hear too often. Yet, there's a central verse, the central verse of this book in chapter 2 is a central verse of our faith. And that is further highlighting why we need to be diligent, study students of the Old Testament and why that matters. I'll do my sales pitch now. Part 1 of the series is this morning. Part 2 is Wednesday evening. Folks, make his word a priority. Come to prayer on Wednesday, come to study on Wednesday. In these times and in our lives, it's important that we are in his word as much as we can be. As his bondservants, it's important. We need to know him. To know him, we need to study him. To study him, we need to study his word. So really try to make that a priority. If you can't go, listen online. Psalm 1, that reminder, blessed is the man meditating day and night on his word. So really try to clear that calendar, make it happen. Commercial's over, back to your main programming this Sunday morning. (laughs) Habakkuk, I've entitled this message, Why God? Now by a show of hands, how many of you have ever asked that question in any capacity? Why God? Show of hands. Look around the room. Almost everybody has hands up. We all go through these moments of asking ourselves at various times, why God? We look to the world, we look to ourselves, different circumstances, different times, different events have us wonder, why? Why is that going on? Why is this happening? Why is this person like this? Why am I suffering? So before we explore that question in a beautiful way that Habakkuk gives us a chance to, first we need to understand a few historical things about this book. So first off, who wrote the book of Habakkuk? Habakkuk wrote the book of Habakkuk. Um, And the timing of this and the writing of this is found, we look in the context, when we look in Hebrews 1, we see the the prediction of the Babylonian invasion of Judah in chapter 1. And that has theologians point to the 7th century, around that timing. Specifically, folks say sometime between 626 to 606 BC. Habakkuk is a contemporary of Jeremiah, even though Jeremiah would prophesy after him. Habakkuk ends up prophesying during the final days of the Assyrian Empire and the beginning of Babylonia's rulership 
under Nabopolassar and his son, Nebuchadnezzar, which is a name that one might sound more familiar. Now, Nabopolassar was in power and rose to power around 626 BC, and he expands power and control at that time to the north and the west. In 612, the Babylonian army overtakes Nineveh, forcing the Assyrian rulers to seek refuge. And they first seek refuge in Haran and then in Carchemish. And respectively, that's 609 BC and then 606 BC. Now at that time, the Egyptian king Necho was going through Judah in 609, and he was going to assist the Assyrian king who was fleeing. He fought King Josiah at Megiddo, and you can read about that in 2 Chronicles 35, verses 20 to 24, resulting in Josiah being killed. And the throne was then left to his three sons and a grandson. Now, Josiah is important because Judah was struggling with obedience to God. But in 622, he discovers the book of the law in the temple, and he brings back reforms. And we read about that in 2 Kings 22 and 23, giving you lots of homework to do. Supplemental, do it before Wednesday, there will be a quiz. Um, He gets rid of the idolatrous practices that his father Amon in 2 Kings 21, 20 to 22, we read about was doing, and his grandfather Manasseh in 2 Kings 21, 11 to 13. The two of them had turned drastically from the ways of God. Of Manasseh in 2 Kings 21, we, 11, we read, he acted more wickedly than all the Amorites who were before him and has also made Judah sin with his idols. And about Amon, we read in 2 Kings 21, 20, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord as his father Manasseh had done. Yet of Josiah in 2 Kings 22, 2, we read, And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Yet, upon his death, the nation quickly goes back to all of its evil ways. As we read in 2 Kings 23, Josiah restores, dies, and they return to their ways, and judgment is predicted to come upon Judah they become morally and spiritually corrupt. The ruler at that time is Jehoiakim, and we get a good depiction of him from the prophet Jeremiah in 22.17. He says, Yet your eyes and your heart are for nothing but your covetousness, for shedding innocent blood and practicing oppression and violence. That's who's ruling at that time. They worship Baal. They offer sacrifice of children to Moloch. They allow the temple to be ruined. They dedicate horses to the sun god. More and more depravity and things against God. So when Habakkuk goes before God, at that time, it seems to him as though God's just letting them get away with their idolatry. Habakkuk feels like God is silent. And he's asking, why God? Why is this going on? He's genuinely asking that question. He's not just saying, why, God, I'm going to go on and do whatever. He genuinely asked that. So let's read 
stand up, and we're going to look at chapter 1, and we're just going to read right now the first four verses. So we're in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, first four verses. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and you will not hear? Even cry out to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. Father God, we thank you for this book. We thank you for every book of your Bible, Lord. We thank you for the complete word that you give us to know you better, Lord. Father, I ask you to fill me with your spirit right now that the words that come out of my mouth would be solely from you. Fill me with your power, Lord, to deliver the words that your people need, Lord. And Father, I pray for the heart, souls, the ears, the eyes, every aspect of each person's being here, that it would be focused on your word, the manna, that they are getting this day, Lord, that we would know what you need us to hear to be closer to you. And for some, what we need to hear to finally surrender fully to you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So, we start with that very first verse. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. Now, burden there, it's translated oracle, prophecy. It actually becomes a phrase that God ends up forbidding through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 23, 33-38. Why? Because many false prophets were coming and they were saying it and using it when God hadn't even called them. And clearly, the false prophets were going around and acting as though there's this burden from the Lord, but there was no burden. They were not an oracle. They were not called. But that said, that's what this opening comes with, making it clear we're getting something from the heart of a prophet, and which the prophet Habakkuk saw. We're getting what he's seen. We're getting what he's observed. It sets the stage for Habakkuk to go before God with a true lament, with questions, with wonder. Notice the depth of the relationship as we go through this. The intimacy that he goes before God, so raw and so real. He doesn't just sit in the corner with the circumstance and cry and and wonder. He doesn't just, bah humbug, woe is me, my life is miserable. No, he goes before him. How do we handle that? He goes to God. What about you? When you look at the state of things in your life, when you look at things that are heavy on your heart, about yourself, about the world, do you just sit, scroll on your phone? I'll just look at Instagram now. Or youth, I'll go on Snapchat. Or do you go to God? The study of this book is going to show what happens when we take questions of confusion and bitterness to God. Ultimately, when we see these three chapters, we see doom and gloom turn to hope and glory. The very name of the prophet of this book hints at that hope that this book has. Habakkuk means embrace. So making his name mean he who embraces. So as we'll see, Habakkuk's going to wrestle with God in some questions, but it's going to end with faith and hope in God. Come Wednesday night to see that faith and hope. But it's going to end with faith and hope in God. He who clings to the king by the end of this book 
So it's important, that name, embrace. So what does Habakkuk say to God? How does he question God? What is his why, God? Verse two and verse three. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble for plundering and violence are before me? There is strife and contention arises. He begins with a complaint. God, why is this taking so long? God, why aren't you listening? God, I'm telling you, it's whack down here and violent. You aren't saving. You aren't doing what you do, God. He starts by saying, God, why are you doing nothing? God, it's a mess. What are you doing? Where are you? Habakkuk surrounded by injustices in his nation. And he's wondering, where are you, God? Verse three, he gets more personal. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There's strife and contentions. God, why are you letting me see all of this? Why do you allow me to see these pains and troubles? God, there's so much chaos around me. There's strife. There's intentions amongst his own people. The Jews, as their sensitivity to sin against God is minimal or non-existent. The plundering and violence is an abuse of power that's taking place, acts of injustice, oppressive deeds taking place, and the righteous being belittled. The strife and contentions that he speaks to, it's arguments with each other. It's destructive litigation rather than fellowship of God's people. Verse 4, therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgment proceeds. The law that God gave them on Mount Sinai has little impact. The people are focused on material living. There's no care about God's sense of fairness and humanity. God's chosen people commit and tolerating heinous acts and the corruption around them in his courts further allowing it. The godly become restricted in this. They become restricted because what they can do and what they can say is now controlled by the evil all around them. And in the midst of that, Habakkuk says, why God? Violence, sin growing, God's law not mattering at all. People pursuing material, people pursuing self over God. Those who follow God being isolated and put in a box as evil overtakes. Does that sound familiar at all? Look at our very own nation right now. God's being pushed out. Rulers are focused on their own agendas. The legal system is being used to manipulate, control people under false pretenses of safety and security. Children are being exposed and sacrificed to a system that wants them to leave their God-given creation, call, purpose, and him, his image, for them for one that promotes sex, perversion, drugs, alcohol, and more. Leave God's creation and make your own. Mommy and daddy might say that you're a boy, but if you want to be a little girl, do it. You be you. Live your truth. God's order, order and design replaced with a lie. As it says at the end of verse 4, for the wicked surround the righteous, therefore perverse 
judgment proceeds. So right in these first four verses, I hope you realize the importance of the entire counsel of God's word. Because that, that, that's what started to strike me when I read this. Because full, full truth, in praying about what to teach and the Holy Spirit nudging Habakkuk, I'm like, Habakkuk? Why Habakkuk? Can't I just do something in the new to Habakkuk? And then as I read, I was like, oh, wow. So we keep going. Verse 3. Habakkuk asks an honest question. And maybe one you've asked. God, why do you let me see sin? Why do you let me see all this trouble? Why do you let me see everything that's going on in the world? Sometimes we wonder that. Everything God does has a plan. He sometimes lets us see these things, lets us see the depravity, and he uses it to humble us and keep us humble. He uses it to make us cherish the fact that he died on the cross for us, that we're saved, that we're secure, and that we have the promise of eternity. He uses it to keep us in submission to him, that we revere him with awe. He uses it so that we can see in others how it might have been for us were it not for the blood of Christ. And that perhaps then the Holy Spirit fills us with the power to say, Lord, how do I help that person? How do I minister to that person that they may come to know you? He uses it that then when that person may come to know him, we admire even more his grace and mercy. He uses the reality of suffering, of pain, of chaos, of all the things we're seeing right now to hopefully spark a fire that we live the great commission with just spark and go and do it. As Spurgeon once said, Ah, my brethren, we need to know more of the evil of men to make us more earnest in seeking their salvation. For if there be anything in which the church is lacking more than in any other matter, it is in the matter of earnestness. Now Spurgeon said that at his time, and I'm like, well, you could just pop that quote to this time. We must be earnest in seeking the salvation of those without Christ. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, what are you waiting for? Come talk to me. Come talk to someone here. Stop the delay. Realize See that God saw the depravity of man. God sent his one and only son to die on a cross for you. He sent Jesus for you, 100% man, 100% God. And let every drop of blood come out of his body that we could be forgiven for sins past, sin present, sin future, that we could have the gift of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, that we can commune with him. So if you're sitting here and you haven't surrendered your life to that man, to Jesus Christ and made him your savior and Lord of your life. Let's talk, please. Please, I'll, I'll be around. There's other people here you can talk to. And if you have, wonderful. But I hope that this study of Habakkuk pushes you closer to the Lord, closer to seek his Holy Spirit, and closer to being attentive to how he responds when he asks you, why God? So let's look at how he responds in this. We're going to look at verses 5 through 11 now. When we look at verse 5, look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. God answers with that awe-inspired authority. 
And he basically says, if it was, you know, blunt teen translation, dude, I'm already on it. Be utterly astounded. You won't believe, Habakkuk, who I am working and going to use to come bring judgment upon Judah. Don't think I'm not watching and moving behind the scenes. It's a message for us. Don't think that with all going on in our world, particularly our nation, that God isn't handling things and orchestrating things. Saints, Habakkuk didn't have what we have. We have the full counsel of the word of God. We've got the playbook. We know how it's going to go, what's going to happen. God says at the end of verse 5 that he's going to work a work that Habakkuk won't believe. Now, to somebody who wants to run prosperity world with that, that's not, oh, it's going to be big. It's going to be a new car. It's going to be, no. This is, it's going to be bad, and it's going to be true. Sometimes that's God's answer to the why. It's going to be bad, and it's going to be true. And you might not be able to easily digest this. Why, God? Because he is, and he is sovereign. That's why. Because he is, and he is sovereign. Because he is, and he is sovereign. So what shall he do? Sorry, slip back. Verse 6. For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. He's going to use the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to judge Judah. Huh? He's taking a wicked people and he's going to allow their sinful desire to conquer Judah to come to fruition. Huh? Realize that's something important. If God didn't allow, if he didn't grant this allowance for that to happen, they would have never conquered Judah and removed God's people from the promised land. Important to remember. And God's going to hint at that a little bit later. And he makes it clear at the end of verse 6 that they're taking places that aren't theirs. Verse 7 and 8. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceeds from themselves. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. God makes it clear that he knows, and of course he does know, just who these Chaldeans, these Babylonians truly are. Terrible and dreadful. Habakkuk is wanting Judah to be judged, and terrible and dreadful people are going to bring the judgment. Yet right there in verse 7, the second half, God hints even at their self willed nature of their pleasure. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Then in verse 8, God uses imagery of these animals to point to the depth of power, craftedness, and skills these people have. Ferocious portraits of animals to point to their strength as a people. Verse 9, they all come for violence. 
Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold, for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. Then his mind changes and he transgresses. He commits offense, ascribing this power to his God. God hints at their power. Clearly, he doesn't hint. He says what their power is and the way they act. But the end at verse 11 He points to the judgment that's going to come on them one day. Why? Ascribing this power to his God. They ascribe all the power that they have, everything that they do, to their God, not the only true God. So when they take over Judah, they don't hit the reality that the God of creation allowed this. They go to their God and eventually we'll see they're overtaken by the Persians, another Bible study and topic. So we see God answers Habakkuk's why with saying, I'm already moving in a way that you're not going to be able to understand. You're not going to be able to really digest. It would be as if today we go to God and say, why is all of this going on in our country? What is happening? And he says, don't worry. I'm already working. I'm going to take over with your greatest enemies, your nuclear enemies. I'm going to take over. They're going to bring judgment on America. Oh, that's what's going on. But ironically, in the context of having this and having the book of Revelation, having all of scripture as a whole, Well, that might not be what occurs. We do know, as we hit this past Wednesday when we looked at the life of Stephen, it's going to get worse. But thank you, Jesus, that we're not going to be here for the worst. That's a beautiful thing. The rapture. Woo! Now, Habakkuk's response here, verse 12 through 17, we see his response to this. So first we get this why. Then the Lord's like, listen, I'm already working, but you're not going to fully get it. And then Habakkuk says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil, and you cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Why do you make men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no rule over them? They take up all of them with a hook. They catch them in their net and gather them in their dragnet. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet because by them there is sumptuous. Their share is sumptuous and their food plentiful. Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? So he shifts his concern from the why, and now he's kind of focused on the means that God's going to do this. He's kind of focused on the, okay, let's talk about this how. He says why God, God answers with the how, and he's not really a fan of the how. It's a quick reminder for us. When you go to God with a why God, and he gives you his how, and it doesn't please you, how do you respond? Because often we stop praying, might close our Bibles, might pull away, I don't need to go to church that Sunday, I'm, I'm sleepy, I worked late Saturday night, it's been a long week. We ultimately rebel against God, who is sovereign. He is sovereign. So for us, with those tendencies, Take note of how Habakkuk responds here. And I want you 
If you come Wednesday, you'll see the fruit of that mindset shift that only God can orchestrate, but you'll see how it works and how it shifts him. In verse 13, he speaks to the brilliant character of God. God is pure. He can't look on wickedness. Think of that moment when Jesus is on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment when all of the sin was on there, God wasn't looking down at man's sin. He was looking at his son and the work that he was doing that we could be redeemed, that we could have relationship with him. One mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. So Habakkuk says, I know your character. And because I know it, how can you have people who are so much more sinful than us judge us? How can you do that? And in verse 14 to 16, he takes it further. He says that God's taken people and he's basically turned them into little sea creatures. It's like you basically turned us into like fish. We're helpless. We're helpless with this how. They get us, they have us, they kill us, they dispose of us, they fill the net again. And then in verse 16, he talks about the fact, and then they worship the net. They don't even worship you. They worship the net. They don't give credit to you, God. And still... Verse 17, shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? Now, interestingly for us, again, who has the whole counsel of the word of God, turn to Romans with me really quickly, because there's a piece that if Habakkuk was living today and he was a friend and came over and was like, dude, he's going to use somebody that's worse than us to judge us. That's not fair. I would say, dude, look at Romans 3, verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. And then I'd say, let's look at verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, of course, at that time, that wasn't, he didn't have that, but we do. And we've got to think about that when we are looking at what's going on. When we're looking, do we kind of start to play that game? Well, I have less sin than you have. We have less sin than that group of people. We all fall short. So why, God, and instead of getting stuck and looking at the how, shift to how to be used as his vessel? Habakkuk at the end of chapter one is battling with him, and most of us would probably stop right there. We'd kind of just be like, Lord, I don't get why it's that. We're better than them. That's not fair. That's not fair. And we just kind of stay there. That's not fair. Wah, wah, wah. But I like what he does. And I charge us to try that. Chapter 2, verse 1. I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. Ooh. <laughs> he says... I'm going to wait, I'm going to accept what you have to say, and I'm going to accept your correction. That's what we all do when we go to God, right? We just say, I'm going to wait and tell me how wrong I am. That's what he does. To truly embrace God, we need to know God. To know God, we need to know him as the God of Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We need to know him as the in the beginning God. Because if we really start there, we know him as sovereign. We know him as sovereign. 
He says, God, Habakkuk in this moment, I don't get it, but I know that you're God, so that means you're right, so tell me how I'm wrong. Tell me how I'm wrong. And God provides the answer. Then the Lord answered him and said, verse 2 of chapter 2, write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. Write the vision, not speak, as is often custom of the time, but make it plain and simple so that the people who see it are able to run after reading it. An important lesson for us when we're giving witness, when we're sharing the word, give the word, keep it simple, that whoever hears it can run with it in their lives. Important for the church. That's why I love the Calvary Chapel model. Give the word, verse by verse. Keep it simple. Don't add a bunch of stuff. I'm not up here moving snakes or doing things or dancing around. No, just stick to this. Church is in a business. And then let people run. Trust the Holy Spirit to do his work and let people to run after. Sadly, that's not the case. I have heard this, the, the book of Habakkuk, how it was introduced to me, was a friend who was Pentecostal reading that particular verse to me and saying, dude, just write what you want, write the vision, make it simple, and God's going to give it to you. Now, we're looking in context, which is the only way to look at scripture. I have no clue how you get that as the conclusion. I, no clue. But that's why, folks, always please make me a promise, whether you're here or anywhere, Make sure that wherever you are, the preaching is giving you the word verse by verse, rightly divided, not topical. Please, please, if I never see you again, please make that promise that you stay under the full counsel of God's word, period. Verse three, for the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. The vision has some important meaning. In the immediate, the vision of the judgment to eventually come upon Judah. God's also speaking to the ultimate judgment to come. The vision we read of in Daniel 8, 17 to 19. Understand, son of man, the vision refers to the time of the end. An appointed time. For us with our why God today, Christ is going to rapture his bride, the church. The entire hope of our incredible eternity with our amazing God that will come. Though it tarries, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not tarry. So how are you tarrying? Is your why God based in staying why and how do you want me to do this? How do you want me to do this? Or Are you panicked? Are you worried? Are you stressed with it? Or do you rest in the promise that he's going to come? Do you rest in the promise of the final judgment and eternity with him? But how do we find that rest? How do we get to that rest? Verse four. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. The just shall live by his faith. Habakkuk doesn't get how God could use the Babylonians. Remember, God made it clear that's what's going to happen. He doesn't get the how. 
But God gives a little bit of a comfort, comfort in that start. Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him because he knows the heart of the Babylonians. He knows they're prideful. And that pride doesn't win because pride keeps us away from God. It keeps people from surrendering to Christ. And it keeps those who are surrendered to Christ from being fully in the center of God's will. A rich man proud of his riches. A poor man proud of having less. A talented man proud of all of his talents. A man of few talents proud of his hard work. A religious man proud of his religion. An unbeliever proud of their unbelief. An establishment man proud of his place in society. A countercultural man proud of his outcast state. A learned man proud of his intelligence and learning. A simple man proud of his simplicity. I give those examples to have us remember, guys, pride doesn't just come in the way that we kind of default to think about it. So search your heart to see where pride may have crept in because it does in various forms and formats. And that's why Luke 9, 23, we're called to what? Deny ourselves how often? Daily. Daily. That's why that's there. That's why we get this comfort at the end of verse four. The just shall live by faith. If we're living by faith, that denying ourselves is gonna be a lot easier. And that's the key. That's the key right there. The just shall live by his faith. Do you live by faith alone? It isn't about the law. It isn't about you. It isn't about how you feel. It's solely about faith. Who's having the faith? The just. Who are the just? The just are the ones who've been justified by Jesus Christ. The just are the ones who've seen, read verses, heard the gospel, have come to know the truth about who Jesus is, what he did on the cross, and say, Jesus, be my king. The justified might be the person here who walked in without fully surrendering to Christ and leaves here fully surrendered and accepting Jesus as Savior and Lord of their lives. And make sure you yourself, if you're saved, think about that. Is he your Savior and is he also Lord of your life? The just is the one on the journey of sanctification that means Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is my Lord. Now this verse The just shall live by his faith is an important one that we see quoted three times in the New Testament. We see it in Romans 1.17, Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, and Hebrews 10.38. In the context of Romans 1.17, it's after verse 16, and we're getting no shame of the gospel, for I shall not be ashamed of the gospel. It's the power to save. And in the middle, before we see what occurs when people decide to have faith in themselves at the end of chapter one of Romans. And they find self-sufficiency unto rejection of God instead of reliance on God and the gospel and dependency on him. In Galatians 3.11, it's in the context of first we see in chapter two, the law leads to death, but we live by faith to God, 2.19. The life I live now by faith, Galatians 2.20, having begun by the Spirit, can now be perfected in the flesh, 3.3. Then, no, 
The just man is not justified by the law, but the just man is justified and lives by faith. So in Galatians, Paul hits the law isn't what saves, and we can't live under a checklist of rules, but faith, faith, faith. That's it. Then in Hebrews 10.38, we see the author of Hebrews, and I got to say, men, we're working through Hebrews. More and more, lean Paul, author, because it's interesting. The other two examples where it's used are by Paul. Just saying we can have that dispute when pastor is back. But in the context of Hebrews 10 and 11, we see faith as living it, focusing on the hope of things to come and not yet seen. That faith is the only way to please God in Hebrews 11:6. That it anticipates the heavenly glory to come in 11, 10, and 16. It doesn't always have its fulfillment in this life. But what faith ultimately does, Hebrews 12, everyone turn there. Verses one to four. It allows us to do this because we get therefore and read chapters 10 and 11, homework assignment again. We could do it now, but then we might be here a little longer. (laughs) Um, Read 10 and 11, but we get that hall of faith in 11 and we're able to see verse 12, chapter one. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Faith helps us to keep our eyes on Jesus. Faith helps us to push away the things that God does not want in our lives. For Habakkuk, the just lived by faith was a call and confirmation for him to what he said before, I'm gonna wait. It's a confirmation to wait and to wait on that how. For us today, with the full counsel of the word of God, it means a few other things with the just shall live by faith. In the context of the book of Habakkuk, we see that it's important to go to God with your whys. You can go to God with your whys. Don't think, oh, there's nothing, I can't can't talk to God about that. No, you can. And it's also important for us to remember that when he gives us the how to the answer of that why, accept that how with his sovereignty. Accept that how with his sovereignty. And be like Habakkuk and say, God, I don't get it, but I'm gonna stand and wait because you're right you know more. And in further application, we see the ability to examine in relation to our why God, do I live by faith? On Wednesday, we saw how Stephen handled persecution because he was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Today, I want you to ask yourself, do I live by faith? In our society today, people live by many things. Some live by what people say about them. Some by the amount of money in their bank account, their social status, their likes and retweets or re-whatevers on social media. They live by faith in their daily devotional. Notice I said faith in the daily devotional, not faith just in God alone. They live by what's going on in their life. They live by works. And a shout out to any of the men who are at the men's conference. They live by feelings. 
Church, we have to live by faith and faith alone. That's what we have to live by. And when we look at Hebrews 12, 1 through 4, drop this in, live by faith of the author and finisher of our faith. Live by faith of what is to come. We have a hope like no other. For a third time, I'll remind you, if you don't know Jesus, let's talk. In the midst of these dark times, because it can feel so, whoa, in the midst of this why, in the midst of what's going on, but also in the midst of happy times, also in the midst of excitement, live by faith alone, period. We live by faith alone, faith in God, faith in his word, faith in him. What does that mean? It changes things for us because what should happen when people ask us questions, if we live by faith, our response should be, it is written. Why? How did Jesus fight Satan in the wilderness? It is written. Scripture, what's our one offensive weapon in the armor of God? The word of God. So when you feel the why coming on, sometimes check and say, is this just a moment I need to say it is written and live by faith? Do you see that beautiful gift and power that we as believers in Jesus Christ have? The beauty and strength that comes from living in faith and faith alone. Now to the person who's sitting there, yeah, but you don't know what I've gone through. You don't know the hardship or how hard it was. You don't know what this person did to me. I don't, but I know what I lived through. And I know that it is written, I'm a new creation in Christ. I know that it is written, God works all things together for the good for those that are called according to his purposes. I know that it is written, if I take his yoke upon me, he will give me rest. I know it is written, he will not leave me an orphan and he has filled me with his Holy Spirit that I may have a comforter, a helper, and a teacher. I know that it is written, he is coming again. That is how I will live, the just live by faith alone. That's what I know. So for you who might be thinking, you don't know what I'm going through, I don't. You don't know what I went through. But it is written that God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should have eternal life and not perish. That I know. So on Wednesday, we're going to finish Habakkuk and we're going to see the peace that comes in prayer. So I hope you'll come out for that and see what God has for you in that message. But in the meantime, go before the king. If you don't know him, go to him for salvation. If you do know him, go to him for refining. Go to him and have him search your heart. Open up and say, Lord, search my heart. Get real with God today so that you can truly say, I live by faith and faith alone. And I don't care how long you've been walking with the Lord. Go before him. Because he may have pieces of pruning he wants to do. He will. But he may also say, hey, before you leave here today, go share how your walk by faith has been with that younger person, with that person who is a younger person in the Lord. Because that's what we got to do as the church. Go to him with your whys. Accept the how with his sovereignty, but stand like Habakkuk did, ready for that correction, and live by faith alone. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the chance to look at this prophet of the Old Testament, Lord God. And thank you, Father God, for the reminder that we can come before you with all of our raw and real emotions, Father God. Thank you for the reminder of your sovereignty, Lord.
then thank you most importantly, Lord, of the reminder to live by faith. Lord, we thank you that we live in a time where we do have your full word, every jot and tittle, Lord, to read, to pray through, to discern, to prepare, Lord. Help us to be a people that lives by faith, Lord. And Father, we pray for anybody here who doesn't know you, that they would be able to come to know you today, that they would be able to surrender and cast aside the pride, the doubt, the unbelief, whatever is keeping them from letting you reign in their hearts, that they would do that, that they would ask to speak to someone, and that they would come to know you, Lord. Please, Lord, for we know that you are coming, and as we tarry, Lord, help us to do it living out the commission. Help us to do it denying ourselves daily. Help us to do it laying aside every sin that weight that besets us. Help us to run to the author and finisher of our faith, you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Have a blessed day.